following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. If you were with us last week, we'll remember that Pastor York began a series in 1 Corinthians, addressing the first few verses of of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, and and he described for us something of the background of this text. He described for us the Corinthian church, a church that was a wealthy church, a church in a city that was an important and strategic city in the Greek world world, uh, a church that was set in a a city that was filled with all of the pleasures that a sinful and broken world offers. Corinthian, in fact, was an adjective itself that described a lifestyle of of sin. Um, But this, this church set in this sinful and yet important city was a church that loved rhetoric. It loved wisdom. It still held on to its love for many of the things uh, of the world, and, and as we, it played out this love for philosophy and, and wisdom, as Pastor York described, it was a church faced with divisions, with arguments, with competitions for leadership, for followers, over strong personalities, by strong personalities in, in the church. And tonight, with that background, we're going to look at the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in which Paul really is describing and reminding the Corinthian church, of the gospel and what it is about the gospel that actually undercuts all of the pursuit of of power and privilege and jockeying for position that was going on in the church. So let's read verses 18 through 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would be you and your power at work in your word that shapes us according to your will tonight. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. This this text, these, these verses are describing one thing and two different perspectives on that one thing. It's describing the gospel and two perspectives on the gospel. It's describing this reversal where God takes something that some view as folly, foolishness, and weakness, and others in whom God has called and is working view it as, as powerful. And I think this, this, this paradigm of something that some consider foolish and others consider wise is certainly a paradigm we all experience in life in different ways. I can, I can think of, of this playing out in my own life as, as a young uh, boy. I lived in a block where I grew up, and, and in the, on that block there were four houses with yards that all abutted one another, and each one of the houses had a boy about my age. And so, you know, this was a sort of one big continuous yard. But amongst those four boys, three of us pretty much liked all of the same things, namely sports. And we just wanted to play sports. The fourth could care less about sports. He could describe the inner workings of electrical systems at three um, and have home videos of him doing that. But he, he, we, the, the other three of us just didn't know what to do with him. And he would do things like you know, come up with this idea for having a carnival in the garage and we would laugh at the idea. And then he would buy prizes and we all really wanted to play and he would make money off of us after we laughed at him. And I remember particularly one time when the three of us were were golfing around our yards. We had our little nine-hole course we made up in our three adjoining yards. And we're golfing and we see him pulling a red flyer wagon down the street. And on the back of the red flyer wagon was a kitchen... Uh, cabinet that he'd pulled off of someone's trash pile. So he's got his red flyer wagon on the, uh, with, the, with the kitchen cabinet, and he proceeds to tell us that he has just spent $15 to stock this cabinet with chips, snacks, and drinks. And he's going to hold a lemonade and snack stand. Now, I had a lot of experience with lemonade stands, and the most that I had ever made was $0.65. Cents. So to me, the idea of dropping $15 for a snack and lemonade stand was utter foolishness. And so we immediately began to mock him. You know, yeah, great, great profit margin you're going to have there. You know, uh, let us know when you uh, can't sell it and we'll let you know, we'll be happy to eat it all for you so it doesn't go to, you know, we're mocking him mercilessly. And I remember him going down and, and he was very persistent. And, you know, by day three, we saw him pass and he now had the red flyer wagon hooked up to his riding mower and he was riding it to strategic locations around the neighborhood. And he was very persistent, and it was about three weeks of this before we decided we'd sort of check in on him, you know, how's the, how's the snack stand going? Um, and he pulled out his cash box and, and, just, and told us he'd restocked three times and had made $125 profit. We uh, stopped laughing and started looking for our own kitchen cabinets on trash piles, but it didn't work out. Here it is. We thought this was utter foolishness, folly, a red flyer wagon with a kitchen cabinet, and you spend all your savings on snacks. What is he thinking? And yet we were all put to shame by the wisdom of the entrepreneur who raised $125 in three weeks. 
Well, this is something along the lines of what Paul's describing as he talks about the gospel coming to the ancient culture, coming to the people that he's talking about. What appears to many to be folly actually turns out to be the power of God. Paul gives us the thesis statement. He gives us the key point of this text in one verse, right at the top in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This person, this person Jesus, this person whose death and resurrection forms the cornerstone of the gospel that we preach, this word about Jesus appears to be so foolish to so many, while to those who have been called, it is nothing less than the life-transforming power of God. Now, perhaps, perhaps to some of us tonight, it's very obvious why the gospel would appear to be folly to some. Maybe, maybe the gospel still seems like folly. Maybe to others of us, we've grown up in the church, or at least a culture where the story of Jesus is so familiar that we wonder, how can anyone be surprised at or think that this story that we know so well is ridiculous? And so it's worth pausing for a minute to say, why was it that these Jews and Greeks considered the gospel to be folly? Well, the gospel, the gospel calls upon Jews, first, to see a dying carpenter from Nazareth as the Messiah, the Son of God sent to save his people. Well, you have to remember the position of the Jews in the first century. The Jews had been waiting for the Messiah for centuries and generations. The Jews knew something about the Messiah. They knew what they were looking for in a Messiah. They knew what they were looking for, and, and you could say in some ways they were Messiah experts. They'd spent their lives knowing what he was going to look like, what he was going to do, what, what they were looking for to identify him. And, and, and none of what they knew included a carpenter. It didn't include Nazareth. And it certainly didn't include a guy who died as a criminal. That wasn't the Messiah the Jews had spent centuries looking for. The Jews were looking for a man who would demonstrate his status and his role as Messiah by doing great deeds which would, uh, on behalf of Israel, rescuing them, restoring Israel's greatness by the power of God. They were looking for someone who would restore Israel as the cornerstone of the kingdom of God for his glory. And so you remember the question they asked Jesus, if you are the Messiah, they said, if you are the Messiah, then show us a sign so that we'll believe that you're the Messiah. Now, granted, you know, we, we start to think, well, show us a sign. I mean, Jesus had just healed a bunch of blind guys, and he'd made a lame man walk. You know what I mean? Show us a sign. But that's not the sign that Israel's looking for. They're not just looking for a guy who can make a blind man see. They want to see a sign that he, that Jesus, is God's servant sent to restore Israel's greatness as the center of the kingdom of God. And trusting a guy from Nazareth who goes around preaching things that don't sit well and don't seem to line up with what they know, who hangs out with tax collectors and who went ahead and died on a cross, that's a stumbling block for Jews. That is folly for the Jews. The Messiah doesn't do those things. And maybe you could think, I was thinking, what, what would be some sort of comparison for us? And, and you could imagine, you know, perhaps if uh, one of the Fortune 500 companies uh, he gets a new CEO, and it's a bit of a, a mystery who this new CEO was. And you know, a guy comes to our church and introduces himself as the new CEO of the Fortune 500 company. But 
he shops for his clothing at Goodwill and, and his groceries at Walmart and lives in a studio apartment off South Queen Street. And we're going to start saying, wait a second, this doesn't match our expectations. This isn't what we're looking for in the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. We're going to start doubting whether this is really who he says he is. And so we're going to say, show us a sign that you are who you say you are because you don't match up with our expectations. It's folly. It's unexpected. Jesus was not what the Jews were waiting for and believing in a dying and rising carpenter from Nazareth is folly to the Jewish people. And for the Greeks, well, the Greeks... The Greeks were very used to discussing gods and divinities and philosophies and ideas and wisdom. They loved to do it. They, you may remember in, in Acts chapter 17 when Paul comes uh, to Athens, they're very excited about the idea of hearing about a new religion. And they say, yes, come. Come and share with us your ideas about this new religion. And, and uh, Paul goes and they're tracking very well with Paul until they come to the point where a god dies and then rises again. See, the Greeks were very used to talking about gods and goddesses, but gods and goddesses don't die. Gods and goddesses avoid suffering and are immortal. And gods and goddesses demand the obedience of humans. They don't get convicted as criminals by humans. And the resurrection from the dead, well, my goodness, the resurrection from the dead, that contradicts everything from logic and philosophy and wisdom. And so Paul was laughed off off the Athenian Acropolis by many. This message is folly to Jews and to Greeks. And of course, this contrast really hasn't gone away today either. Familiarity with the story of the gospel doesn't change the fact that this message is still folly to many who hear it. To those who are perishing, it is still folly. And so, you know, I, I just as a little test, I thought, well, what would happen if I put in something like Christianity's folly or Christianity's ridiculous in Google? And of course, you can imagine, you know, the Google search engine immediately turns out 33.5 million sites with titles like the top 10 most ridiculous things about Christianity or the top 10 reasons why believing Christianity is stupid or why would a normal person believe something so ridiculous as Christianity? You know, it's full of that today as well. Christianity, the gospel is a message that is greeted with foolishness. And maybe today it's not philosophical rigor that someone's looking for. Maybe it's not trying to compare it to a certain philosophical system. Maybe it is. But maybe if Paul was writing to 21st century uh, culture, he would say something like, um, Americans demand scientific verification, but we preach Christ, creator from nothing, miracle worker, and raised savior. As one of the uh, sites that I looked at said, Science doesn't allow for these things, and we all know it. How ridiculous. Our culture still sees the message of the gospel as folly. Cartoons. Look at cartoons. You can see comic strips galore poking fun at the gospel. And I thought, well, maybe I could come up with an example. There were so many examples, and so many of them were so bad that I I couldn't describe one. But what was interesting, the most interesting thing that I came across as I was looking up at comic strips that mock the ridiculousness of Christianity was to find out that the mocking comic strip is nothing new. In fact, we actually have uh, an archaeologist who has found a first-century comic strip showing a half-man with a donkey's head standing before the cross of Christ. The comic strip mocking Christianity as ridiculous has happened from the time it was originally preached. But see, the point of this is not to, you know, rail against the culture. The point of it is to say that the culture isn't what matters. 
It's not this culture or that culture, you know, this culture values wisdom or science. The point is not that. The point is that whatever the culture, Paul zeroes in on the key issue. The word of the cross is, has been, and always will be foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the word of the cross, Jesus Christ crucified and raised, that is folly to culture after culture to those who are perishing. This great reversal is, in fact, part of God's plan. If you look through this passage, I count at least eight different ways that Paul declares this truth. God chooses what is weak and foolish in the world as his instrument, as his message for salvation. The supposed foolishness of God turns out to be wiser than the wisdom of men. The weakness of God turns out to be stronger than the strength of men. Over and over again in various ways, Paul is pointing to the fact that what the world views as weakness, foolishness, a stumbling block, ridiculousness, what the world views as this, that very thing is what God has chosen to be his message of salvation. God has, in his good purposes, in his wisdom, not chosen something that is appearing to be wise or powerful. He has, on purpose, in his plan, chosen something that appears weak and foolish, full of ignorance, something that no one would expect. And it's by that weak message that God raises dead people to life. And why would God choose a weak, foolish message to raise dead people to life? Because that emphasizes that it is the power of God at work. If God chooses something that is powerful and wise in its own right, then people are saying, well, how powerful is God? That's a very logical thing anyways. Maybe the word in and of itself, the, the, the religion in and of itself. No, God chooses what is weak and foolish in the eyes of the world in order to magnify the power of God that is work in it. The very godness of it all is the precise fact that the world sees this message as weakness and folly. But God uses that weak foolish message to save his people. This is how God demonstrates his power in the gospel. And you see, you see how this would begin to undercut these Corinthian leaders. Remember what Pastor York was talking about and what we remembered about the Corinthian church. Men who were creating divisions, who were debating with one another about doctrine and beliefs. Men who were seeking to gain a following for themselves that was fracturing the church. Men in the church who valued wisdom and were using their logic. And so Paul comes back and says, men of the Corinthian church, have you forgotten that it is not all about wisdom? It is not all about power. It's not all about position. God has chosen what is weak and foolish so that he and his power might be magnified. This is the truth of the gospel that undercuts the lies of what the Corinthian church leaders were following. This gospel, says Paul, this gospel is about humble weakness that displays God's power, not individual church leaders demonstrating their rightness over and against each other. Well, this is... This is the big picture of this, this passage. But as, as Paul describes the work of God in the gospel, he, he begins to unpack for us what it is that is the power of the gospel. When we talk about the gospel being a word of power, why is it a word of power? What gives the gospel power? And Paul, I think, gives us two 
particular reasons why this word of the cross is powerful. The first reason, which Paul alludes to in a number of different ways in this passage, is that over and over Paul reminds us that the gospel is not just a random word. The gospel is the work of God himself in our lives. The, the, the gospel is not just a word that came from God. The gospel is the power of God himself at work. It's not about a word that sits out there and then lets man try to figure out if it makes sense. It's not a word that sits out there and says, well, let's see how many people can figure out that this is a good idea. No, the gospel is about God himself at work in your heart, in my heart, in the hearts of his people. See what Paul says in verse, in verse 21. Paul says that it pleased God to save those who believe. It is God's work and God's pleasure. The gospel is God saving those who believe. Verse 24, the gospel is described as the power of God to those who are called. Who's the one doing the calling? It's God himself. God is the one at work. God is calling. God is saving. This word of the cross is God himself at work. Or in verse 27, Paul notes that God has chosen what is foolish in order to shame the wise. You see how over and over it's clear from what Paul is saying that the gospel is the good news, yes, of what Jesus had done, but it is the good news of God at work now. It is the power of God at work in hearts. It's God himself who is at work in the gospel that brings it its power. Why is the word of the cross powerful? Because the word of the cross is God speaking his word. His word that, that also created planets. His word that also parted the Red Sea. His word that also caused Moses' face to shine with glory at seeing but the, the corner of, of, his, of, his, of his glory. The word that knocked down the walls of Jericho. The word that raised up dead men. That's the word that's involved in the gospel. It is the powerful word of God himself is at work in those who are being saved. And I think this becomes immediately clear in our lives. Look at your life. Look at my life. Look at the lives around us. Why in the world would I suddenly stop being the person that I was and that I suddenly start becoming a person who was excited about going to church to worship Jesus? Where did that come from? It didn't come from me suddenly getting really smart. It came because God is a powerful God who spoke his word into our lives. Why in the world am I longing to be in fellowship with Christians in church, worshiping a dead and risen Jesus, instead of doing what I want that gives me some immediate pleasure? Because God is at work by his power in my life. See, the the only reason that we can give for the change that has occurred in our lives is that God has broken into our hearts. That God has smashed our despairing search for idols. That the power and strength and wisdom of God has grabbed hold of us and changed us in a way that is not explicable in any other way than that God himself changed us. The gospel is the power of God because it is the work of God himself speaking his word of power into our lives. Secondly, the, the, the second thing that Paul gives us to, to give us more details on what, is, what does this power look like? Um, how does the gospel express its power? You know, it's one of those things you, you say to someone, well, the, the gospel is powerful, and, and they might immediately be saying things like, well, how do you get that power? You know, and reading, reading, a, reading a book here, where, 
Where does, where does the power come from? You know, is there pixie dust that falls out of the book that gives us power? Is it some secret message, secret message that we get knowledge from that leads to power? How is it that this gospel gives power? The power of God, well, well Paul tells us, and he describes it most specifically in verse 30. What is it that gives the power to this message? In verse 30, Paul says that faith in the gospel brings us into relationship with Christ himself. The gospel unites us with Christ. See, verse 30 describes the fullness of who we are and of what we have in Christ so that this verse, this verse 30 sort of explodes with the breadth and the depth of what we have in Christ, in the gospel. Look at verse 30 with me. It says, because of him, that is God, because of him, that is because of God, because he is the cause of it, he's the one at work, remember, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The gospel lacks wisdom in the eyes of the world. But this gospel is all about Christ, who became our wisdom from God. And what does it mean to say that Jesus became our wisdom from God? It means that in Christ we have righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In Christ, we are declared right with God. In Christ, our relationship with God is restored and we are declared justified in His sight. In Christ, His Spirit is at work in us. In Christ, we are sanctified, set apart, and changed more and more into His image by the Spirit that dwells in us. In Christ, we are redeemed. We are bought back from sin, rebellion, our guilt, our shame, our blindness, our folly, our weakness. We are bought out of that. We are redeemed from that. We have redemption in Christ. What is this power of God that's at work in this message, in this gospel that's being preached? It is union with Christ. It is being brought into Christ so that in relationship with Christ, we have been declared right before God. We have the Spirit of God sanctifying us and setting us apart for Himself. We have been bought back and redeemed by God Himself. That's what the power of the gospel is. What is is this but a totally transformed life and a totally transformed hope? That's what justification, sanctification, and redemption are about. Life transformed now and hope transformed for the future. Everything is changed. That is the power of the gospel. You know, for... For some of this, for some of us, this power may unfold very slowly and seem fairly undramatic. For some of us, we may look back and say, well, gee, I grew up in the church. I've been told these stories all my life. I know I trust Christ, but I don't really see any dramatic moment of conversion. But the power of God is what makes your story such. Why, do you know, why are you where you are? Because the power of God has been at work in your life from the beginning. For others... The power suddenly and completely changed us. For others, the gospel grabbed hold of us and reversed course when we were least expecting it. I loved uh, the story about a year and a half ago. We had Frank Tanana, who was a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, come and speak to the senior high Sunday school class. And he described his life of sin and doing what he wanted to do. And he, re- he described how in every city where there was a major league stadium that he would play, he built his own life of sin. He had a specific girlfriend in every city that he played. 
He had specific bars and places where he could do drugs in every city that he played. And he would go from city to city. And in each city, he had a different world of sin and brokenness. And then Frank Tanana described about how he went through this life being praised by everyone around him as being at the pinnacle of what everyone could hope for. Success as a major league baseball pitcher. And here he was wallowing in sin. And then one day, Frank Tanana was grabbed by the power of God. One day out of nowhere, God made the gospel, which had appeared foolish to Frank Tanana, suddenly appear like the most glorious treasure that he could imagine. And Frank Tanana's life was redeemed, justified, and sanctified in Christ and changed forever. And he described this process to us. And that's the truth that is true in his life. It is the word that was true in your life and my life if we have trusted Christ. And it is the truth that is at the core of the gospel that Paul was preaching and is being preached to us now. This is the power of God. The immeasurable riches of a restored relationship in Christ being declared right with God, set apart and changed by the power of God into the image of God. Glory be to God for his gospel. That's the power of God that's at work in us. Well, what does all that mean for us? We have this great reversal where what appears to be weak and foolish to the world turns out to be the power of God, a power where God himself works to give us Christ and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in him. What does that mean for us? Well, Paul, Paul brings out one particular application in this passage that I want to look at. And he, he really he talks about it in two different ways. But Paul tells us twice at the end of this passage, that if we grasp this truth, then for you and for me, Christian, there is no room for boasting. There is no room for boasting. Look at verses 28 and 29. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Note that that's even part of his purpose. Part of God's purpose here is to say, There is no room for boasting. I'm doing this this way so that it could be totally excluded. How could anyone boast when it is the power of God at work through something that appears so weak and so foolish? Like I said, I think there's two sides to this. First, Paul says that no human can boast about his status or his worth or his ability or his knowledge or his wisdom or his strength or what he has compared to another human being. Now, I think most of, us, most of us probably have no problem with this in principle. I mean, most of us don't walk around sort of with our you know, chests out and nose up saying, you know, I'm a Christian. You're not a Christian. Well, you're not a Christian. Uh, you know, most of us don't walk around like that. We think, oh, yes, of course. I, you know, I won't boast about how I'm a Christian. But, but I think we do struggle with an attitude of, sort of disbelief or, or even anger or dismay at those who consider Christianity to be foolish. I know that at times I have heard a statement by someone mocking Christianity and its ridiculousness, and I've scoffed and said, what is he thinking? Christianity isn't ridiculousness. His reason is utter foolishness. And, and this attitude of sort of dismay and disbelief, we, we can't imagine that this person would find Christianity to be so foolish and so ridiculous. Why would someone, how could someone be so misguided and stupid as to mock Christianity, which is the power of God? And we wonder why they can't see how obvious it is that the gospel is truth. You know, sometimes 
Sometimes, uh, sometimes this attitude is publicly visible. About a year and a half ago, I was watching a video with a group of students uh, on apologetics, and it was a video of uh, a man who was seeking to defend the gospel um, in, in, uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah, to a group of Mormons. And this, uh, this apologist would go out and he would sort of attack the Mormon with these condescending questions of, Could you, can you really believe that? Don't you? And, and the attitude of, 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 of just arrogance that came through was a visible display that although this person may not walk around and say, I'm a Christian, there was, there was an attitude that did not display the proper humility. And sometimes that happens. Other times, though, other times maybe the attitude is not as obvious. Maybe, maybe this attitude is revealed in a lack of compassion that we all have for people who are blinded by sin. When we see someone who is blinded by sin and walking in their sin, what is our response? Is our response not having anything to do with that? Can't believe he'd do with that? Can you believe he would be involved? Or is this our response, oh, he needs the power of God? Is our response one of compassion? Do we, I wonder, respond when we think and pray and consider ourselves as people who believe the gospel? I wonder whether we don't often respond like the Pharisee and beginning, begin thanking God that, that we aren't ignorant or misguided like those people who write websites about the top ten ridiculous things about Christianity. Do we not say, wow, God, I'm sure thankful you gave this to me. I, I can imagine being like him and doing what he's doing or saying what he's saying. Or do we, or do we respond like the tax collector, the publican, who said, oh, for the mercy of God. Do we respond and say, oh, the mercy of God has gripped my life and oh, that the mercy of God might grip his life as well. I wonder whether we don't often lack in our hearts the true humility that this truth demands of us. That the word of the cross is folly to the world and it was folly to us and it would be folly to us but for God at work in us. In fact, I think what we should say is is that we should expect exactly this. We should expect the world to find this message folly. We should expect that the world would think this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be surprised and horrified. It is exactly what we should expect to find. And it's exactly what we should expect to find in our own hearts too, but for the work of God. So, fellow brothers and sisters, Paul says, God has chosen what is low and despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. May we have the proper humility in how we think and how we respond and the compassion that we have for those who do not know Christ and how we think of ourselves and how we have come to know this truth. Only because the power of God has flooded our darkness with light and given us eyes to see can we say amen to what Paul is saying. So first, Paul says, no human being can boast. But he concludes by giving us the flip side. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's a, perhaps an odd statement. But Paul is saying there should be, in some sense, a boasting in the Lord. What, is, what does Paul mean when he says, let the one who boasts, boast in Christ? Well, think about what we're talking about. 
one who boasts, glories in something, he rejoices in something, he declares something, he shouts about something, he tells everyone about something, he, he, he gleefully sings about something, he gives thanks for something. Isn't that exactly what we should be doing for the Lord and for the gospel that he has done for us? Rejoicing, declaring, giving thanks, singing, praising, shouting to everyone. That's the boasting we should have in the Lord Christ. One commentator put it this way. He said, through Christ's work, we have been declared righteous before God. God sanctifies us to make us stand in his presence without wrinkle or spot. God has set us free from the burden of guilt and bondage to sin. Christ is Savior and Lord. Should we all not wish to boast, to declare, to sing that truth? That would be appropriate. In other words, if we really believe that God has taken something weak and foolish and by his power changed us by that, it would be appropriate for our our lives to overflow with a natural outburst of praise and thanks to Christ Jesus. We're so distracted by the things of life. We're so wrapped up in so many other things than the glory of Christ. And so Paul says, keep our gaze on Christ that we might shout and declare and glory in and boast in Christ. Look to Christ. Say to one another, can you believe who Christ is? Can you believe what Christ has done? Can you believe that God's power has been at work in me? Let us boast in glory in Christ. That's the only boasting we have left. And it's all because of Paul's original thesis. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. God, how can we respond but to sing your praise? How can we respond but to say thanks be to God? May this truth seep into every corner of our lives and our hearts and our response to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.